Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 15, Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Numbers chapters 13 and 14 are really just one long story. And we probably by rights ought to read them one immediately after the other, but they're pretty... Each of them are pretty substantial in length, so we're not going to do it that way. We're going to read chapter 13, discuss it, then read chapter 14 and do the same. Now let's remember that chapter 12 ended with the incident of Aaron and Miriam complaining against Moses. The result being that Miriam was afflicted with Sabra'at, a skin disease that was caused as a direct divine judgment upon her by God. And out of respect for Miriam, the entire camp of Israel decided to wait rather than move on during that seven-day purification period from her Sarat in which she had been put outside the camp and could not come into contact with anyone. Now, once that purification period passed, the Israelites moved on into the area of the Paran Desert. And it's widely assumed that all that will occur in Numbers 13 and 14 happens while they are camped at Kadesh, also called Kadesh Barnea, also called, by another name, Ein Mishpat. Okay. Now, this is an enormous and a very lush oasis on the desert's edge on the southern border of the land of Canaan. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. That would be page 162 in the Complete Jewish Bible, and we're going to read it all. Numbers chapter 13. Adonai said to Moshe, Send men on your behalf to reconnoiter the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each ancestral tribe send someone who is a leader of his tribe. Moses dispatched them, dispatched them from the Paran Desert as Adonai had ordered, and all of them were leading men among the people of Israel. Here are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamwa, the son of Zahur. From the tribe of Shimon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Yefuni. From the tribe of Yisachar, Yigal, the son of Yosef. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Yosef, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. And from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Stur, the son of Machel. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nahbi, the son of Vosbi. And from the tribe of Gad, Gewel, the son of Mahi. Now these are the names of the men that Moses sent out to reconnoiter the land. And Moses gave to Hosea, the son of Nun, the name Yahoshua, Yahoshua, Joshua. And Moses sent them to reconnoiter the land of Canaan, instructing them, Go on up to the Negev and into the hills and see what the land is like. Notice the people living there, whether they're strong or weak, few or many. 
And what kind of country they live in, whether it's good or bad, what kind of cities they live in, open, fortified. See whether the land is fertile or unproductive and whether there's any wood in it or not. Finally, be bold enough to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now, when they left, it was the season for the first grapes to ripen. And they went up and reconnoitered the land from the Sin Desert to Rechov near the entrance to Hamat. And they went up into the Negev and arrived at Hebron. Achiman, Seshai, and Talmi the Anakim lived there. Hebron was built seven years before Tsawan in Egypt, and they came to the Eshkol Valley, and there they cut off a branch bearing one cluster of grapes, which they carried on a pole between two of them. They also took pomegranates and figs, and that place was called the Valley of Eshkol, before, because of the cluster which the people of Israel cut down there. Now, forty days later, they returned from reconnoitering the land, and they went to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community of the people of Israel at Kadesh in the Paran Desert, where they brought back word to them and to the entire community and showed them the fruit of the land. Now, what they told him was this. We entered the land where you sent us, and indeed it flows with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. However, the people living in the land are fierce. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakim there. Amalek lives in the area of the Negev. The Hitti, the Yavusi, the Amorites live in the hills. And the Canaanites live by the sea and all alongside the Jordan. Caleb silenced the people around Moses and said, we ought to go up immediately and take possession of it. There's no question we can conquer it. But the men who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people because they're stronger than we are. And so they spread a negative report about the land they had reconnoitered for the people of Israel by saying, the land we pass through in order to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there were giant. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anah, who was from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we look like grasshoppers by comparison. And we look that way to them too. You know, it's difficult, I think, to understate the enormity of the rebellion against the Lord and the catastrophe that's being described here. And as we get into chapter 14, we're going to see the consequences of all this begin to unfold. Like the story of Joseph, a pattern and a type is set up here. That is a once true and historical with, with a meaning and a poignancy all to itself, as well as being prophetic and a metaphor, a type that will in so many ways be repeated not just by the Israelites, but in later eras by the church. Now what we witness here is nothing less than, if it were a novel, an event we would call the fall of Israel. What should have been a wonderful story about triumph and prosperity, a, a, a tale of Israel inheriting the land and all the goodness that the Lord had prepared for them, instead turns into a tragic narrative about disbelief and failure and weakness and even a direct repudiation of God's grace. In effect, this story is not completely unlike Adam and Eve, the fall of man. 
Adam and Eve had no sooner been be created been created by the master potter than they succumbed to their evil inclinations. And they fell from grace. And in our story, Israel had only days and weeks earlier been consecrated by the Lord, given his Torah, and they were basking in this constant presence of God. But now they throw it all away so that they'd obey their own desires and their own fears. So please grasp that we're reading here one of these history-changing moments in the story of mankind. Now Israel had trekked right up to the edge of fulfilling centuries of promise, and then they quit. Just as victory was in their grasp, they drew back in fear. They turned back. They refused to take that one more step into promise. I mean, how on a razor's edge we had all lived until that moment we accepted Messiah. And we had no idea, did we, the danger we were in. Our account here in Numbers 13 opens with Yehovah instructing Moses to send a group of men to scout out the land of Canaan. And that group was to consist of but one man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Immediately, though, we run into a bit of a scriptural dilemma. Because later in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to be told this. Deuteronomy 1.22, it says, Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us a word of the way by which we should go up in the cities which we shall enter. And the thing that pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe. Do you spot the dilemma? Numbers 13 says that God told Moses to send spies, yet Deuteronomy 1 says the people of Israel approached Moses and said they wanted to send spies. And Moses thought it was a good idea, so he handpicked 12 men. So what are we to make of that? The answer, according to a rabbinical writing, is contained in a key Hebrew word used in in, in Numbers 13, verse 1. The Hebrew word is for send. The Hebrew word is Shela Lecha. Shela Lecha. Which literally means send for yourself. In other words, God is telling Moses, if you want to send some spies, you have my permission. What we see in verse 1 is not God of his own impetus suddenly saying, hey Moses, come here a minute. I want you to go get some men and send out some scouts. Rather, it is that God was responding to a request from Moses. Moses was responding to that request from the people. So he took it to the Lord. And Jehovah tells Moses, go ahead, satisfy yourself and the people's fears by sending out these scouts. After all, God knew what was there in the land of Canaan. It was the people of Israel who were unsure about this whole thing. Well, let's be clear on something. There is a difference between spying and scouting. Some Bible versions say the twelve were scouting, others say they were spying. It's a little like the difference, though, I think, between shoplifting and shopping. 
What was instructed in Numbers was to go scout out the land and see it in order to reassure the people. It was like searching for a new community to buy a house. It wasn't necessarily preliminary to a military operation. And if it had been a military operation that was being planned, most certainly the leaders of the tribes wouldn't have gone. And they wouldn't have sent 12. Two or three would have been more inappropriate um, because stealth would have been the key. Now, the leaders chosen for this mission are very high leaders. Not necessarily the prince or chief of each tribe, but notice that there is one tribe that didn't contribute a person to go on this foray. Who do you suppose that is? That's right, Levi. This is but further confirmation that the split between the priestly tribe of Levi and all the other tribes of Israel was complete already. Complete enough that Levi wasn't referred to as a normal part of Israel anymore. Now in verse 16 we get this interesting little aside that one of the tribal leaders eventually had his name changed by Moses. Hosea, son of Nun. Hosea became known as Joshua or more accurately in Hebrew Yehoshua. So what's the difference between Hosea and Yehoshua? Well, in some ways it's quite astounding. Hosea means God saves. Yehoshua means Yehovah saves. Part of the reason for the name change is that Hosea, you see, was born where? Where was he born? In Egypt. Okay. Obviously, well before the Exodus. What we learned back in the book of Exodus was that God had not yet revealed his own personal name, Yehovah, until later. He gave it to Moses at Mount Sinai. Therefore, the name Yehoshua, Joshua, couldn't have existed when Israel was in Egypt because they didn't even know God's name yet. And of course, our Savior's given Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is just a contraction of the word Yehoshua, Yehovah saves. Jesus, Joshua, Yehoshua, Yeshua are all the same name, just in different dialects and languages from different eras. And looking ahead to the book of Joshua, it will be Yehoshua, Joshua, and not Moses that leads the people into the promised land. Moses leads them up to it, not into it. In a direct parallel, the Torah of Moses leads people up to the ultimate promised land, but not into it. That took Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, to do that. Now Moses instructs the people, this this group of twelve rather, to go up through the Negev, which is a barren desert, into the hill country of Canaan. And in essence, they weren't really scouting out the the Negev. It was simply a place they had to go through. 
to reach their goal, which was the hill country. Or really, it's indicating the general area that's surrounding Hebron. And their mission is to determine several things, which are introduced in Numbers 13, verses 18 through 20. So I'm going to reread that little portion to you to get our bearings here. Um, Numbers 13, 18 through 20, it says, I'll start with 17. Moses sent them to reconnoiter the land of Canaan, instructing them, Go up to the Negev and into the hills and see what the land is like. Notice the people living there, whether they're strong or weak, few or many, what kind of country they live in, whether it's good or it's bad, what kind of cities they live in, open or fortified. See whether the land is fertile or if it's unproductive, and whether there's wood in it or not. And finally, be bold enough to bring back some of the fruit. So, the scouts were to check out the people. Check out the land. Check out the towns. See if there's wooded areas. See how well things grow in the soil. Most of the great Hebrew sages agree that this was all about things like climate and fertility of the soil and the availability or not of natural resources. And when the people of Canaan, whether the people of Canaan were fierce warriors wasn't really the issue as far as Moses was concerned. Though certainly it played a role. After all, under no circumstances were these Canaanites going to be particularly thrilled when three million Hebrews showed up with an eviction notice in their hand. And we're given the season in which this scouting mission happened. The time of the first grape ripening, okay, which means it was in the summer. This was in the July-August time frame. It was going to be hot, marching through that Negev. So in verse 21, off they go, and they look the place over. It's a big place. They began by taking a route through the low-lying desert, and then on up to the hill country of Hebron. Right? And then they all, they travel all the way north to a place called Lebohemoth. Way up north. What do we know that by now today? Lebanon. Lebanon. This is the... All up this way is Lebanon. Okay. There's some disagreement over the exact location of this place, Lebo Hamat, but for sure it was well north. Probably actually more in an area that would be called Syria today. It was probably a distance of about 250 miles from Kadesh up to Lebo Hamat, maybe a little more. So it's no wonder it took 40 days for them to get up and back. Now, why was Hebron such an important destination for them? Simple. Abraham was buried there. It was in Hebron that Abraham was first promised the land. Hebron was where Abraham first settled to any degree in the land of Canaan. It was the stomping grounds of all the patriarchs to some degree or another. It was beautiful and fertile, good for pasture, good for crops. 
Hebron would be the unnamed capital of Israel for the first few years of their existence there. Because of the Hebrew history of the place, it therefore was also a very sacred and important place for the Israelites. And the verses say that along the way, this scouting party ran into three men called Anakites. Now exactly who or what the Anakites were is uncertain. The the one thing we do know is that they were a race of tall people. And they were compared to what's called the Nephilim and the Rephaim, spoken of in Genesis pre-flood. Recall that the Nephilim and the Rephaim were a race, the scripture says, was caused when sons of heaven had intercourse with daughters of men. It's always been a mysterious thing. Okay? In other words, angel-like creatures had relations with human women and the result was this line of big, strong, fierce, evil people. Now, were the Anakites the latest version of the Nephilim or were they just being compared to the Nephilim in some rhetorical way? It's hard to know. They should have been wiped out by the flood. So it's hard to know. Goliath, the giant warrior slain by David, was an Anakite, or in Hebrew, Anakim. In any case, these Anakites apparently made quite an impression on these 12 scouts, 10 in particular. Then for some reason, Scripture pauses to inform us that Hebron was founded seven years earlier than Zwan. Now, there's nothing but speculation as to why this was even brought up. But the one thing that is now known is that Zwan would later be called Tanis of Egypt. And Tanis was made the capital of Egypt at about the same time that King David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Next they go to a place called Eshkol and find grapes of enormous size. So large it says that a single cluster had to be strung between two poles to be carried. This is not real. It's a metaphor for explaining the extreme fertileness of the land. It's no different than our saying, I found a watermelon the size of a house. No one in our culture would take that that mean that we found a watermelon that was 30 feet around. It's just a modern way of saying that something was really big. Same thing's happening here. It's also interesting to note that the word eshkol means cluster. Like cluster of grapes. This was a grape growing region. So things were given grape names. So you see how in the Bible... The place names and the stories can all intertwine. Sometimes it's pretty hard to know which came first. The story or the name of the place. In other words, did the place get named after something happened there or was the story developed around the name of the place? Remember, all of what we are reading here was handed down originally word of mouth. And it was done that way for centuries. So, Many literary and phonetic devices were used to make the stories easier to remember and to recite. If we knew Hebrew better, we'd see that many of the verses of the Bible rhyme. Again, because these were originally created in a way that was intended to be handed down 
orally. And just as children are taught songs, you teachers, as memory devices for certain facts, so the ancients used rhyming and poems and unusual word structures in telling tales. I find it interesting that I think the Bible reads so much better out loud. Try it sometime in your own home. Go get yourself in a little room, close the door, and don't just read it silently, read it out loud. And I think you're going to find it's going to have a lot more impact on you. Because that's why how it was created. It was created to be a spoken word, not a silently read word. Anyway, these tribal leaders returned about six weeks later. They go straight to Moses and Aaron and they report what they've encountered. And they first tell Moses what they saw and then they tell, says, the whole community of Israel. This does not mean all Israelites. It just means the elders, the leaders of Israel. And we don't have to read too far before you get a little hint of the bent of these scouts. Because they say, well, we came to the land where you sent us. Not the land the Lord promised, or the land that was sworn to Abraham for our benefit. In other words, they kind of disassociated themselves a little bit from that promise, from the covenant and from God. For them, this was a simple political economic matter. And in the first part of their report, the group of scouts offers what sounds like a pretty positive view. Oh yeah, they say, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is in response to Moses' instruction as they were ready to go on their mission to determine if the land was fertile. And they, they, they show Moses this fruit they brought back. This is in response to the question of was the land wooded, meaning did it support large plants, not just underbrush. But in answering the question about the strength of the people of Canaan, they answered that they were powerful. As for the cities, they were large and well-defended. And by the way, they weren't exaggerating. Most of the walls of the walled Canaanite cities that have been excavated from that era have found to be on average 30 to 50 feet high and 10 to 15 feet thick. The scouts also say that the tall people the Anakites, the Anakim, were present there. And the Amalekites thought to be the dominant people. They were wanderers of the desert region of the Canaan, of Canaan and of the Sinai. They were also there in great number. The Hittites, a very advanced civilization for that era, with its center in modern, what would be modern day Turkey. The Jebusites, Yevusi, right? the original builders of the city of Jerusalem and the Amorites, probably Abraham's original tribe. Very fierce group of people who sought power and dominance, and they were always a bother to their neighbors. Now the Canaanites, a conglomerate of many of the offspring of Noah's grandson Canaan, tended, tended to live along the coastal plains of the land. And all of these groups were there, and they were all well entrenched. They'd been there a long time. Okay. And they undoubtedly had no interest in turning their city-states over 
to the Hebrews. Now let's all understand something. The scouts' assessment was actually pretty well balanced. Okay, They were telling the truth. And the truth was scaring the daylights out of the leaders and the elders of Israel who anxiously gathered around them to hear this scouting report. Now, I think we can pretty easily imagine the rising clatter of the people as the word started to spread. They started expressing all this anxiety and fear, this growing din of complaint and rebellion. Because verse 30 says, Caleb hushed the people. Caleb told the people, quiet down, calm down, settle down. And Caleb said, okay, enough reality. We know what we're up against. Now let's go and take it. Let's take that land, because surely we're going to overcome all these obstacles. Now see, this is not the same conclusion that those within earshot had already come to. The other scouts and the elders had decided it was going to be suicide to take on these formidable peoples of Canaan. And to make their point, now they abandoned their well-balanced report and say that the Anakites are so big that we look like grasshoppers standing next to them. It was hopeless in their estimation. But here's the problem. The scouts and the elders were in rebellion now. Not against Moses, but against God. Their refusal to take God at his word was the greatest affront to his holiness. And there was going to be grave repercussions for this. Now, fellow believers, let me tell you something. Often we think that the main thing we're to listen to the Lord about is to not do something that we shouldn't do. But equally as often, and as in the case and point here with the 12 scouts, our rebellion against God is that we don't do things that we clearly should. That we know we're supposed to do. Instead, we focus on the obstacles, we look away from him, we grow afraid, we grow impatient. We think, well, it's difficult and dangerous. Gee, if it's that hard, we can't, sure can't be from the Lord. I mean, if God set this deal up, ah, oh, it's going to be easy. No problems. Okay? If we encounter problems and difficulties, doesn't go like we're envisioned, well, maybe we're going against God's will. See, that kind of thinking has probably snatched more blessings and victories away from an individual believers and groups of Christians than any other kind. It's a false assumption. Now, I'd like to draw a parallel about this story of the 12 scouts view that perhaps you haven't thought about. It's a very contemporary parallel and one that's going to have a deep and lasting effect on we, the church. See, God had led his people, Israel, to the promised land. But ten men, trusted, respected leaders that had earned that trust and respect, decided to stand in the way of God's people entering that land of promise. These men, on the surface, did what good leaders do. They investigated, they evaluated, and they came to what they thought was an honest and pragmatic conclusion without emotion. 
Ten leaders who lacked faith and trust in God, but who had authority, denied three million Israelites who looked to them for their leadership, their God-ordained inheritance. And many within the body of Christ today are doing this same thing by working so diligently and effectively to introduce us to the Messiah, but then turning around and denying his and our connection with his own people, the Jews, with his own land, Israel. Who can look at the Bible and find one word that abrogates God's often stated covenant that the land of Canaan belongs to his people Israel. Where do we find a single statement that says for the sake of world peace and for humanity that Israel should be pushed to give it up? Or at least part of it. Yet at least half the church today sides with Israel's enemies on the matter of the land. Entire denominations have openly denounced Israel's right to the very land spelled out in every detail in the word of God. Some of the pro-Israel half believes it's only fair to divvy up at least some of that land and give it to those poor Palestinians. After all, isn't that just simple love and justice like Jesus taught us? And if we love the Palestinians, the only possible response is to carve up, carve off some of that promised land and force Israel to give it to them so they can have their own nation. See, the consequences for those who seek to thwart God's plan for his people, Israel, to claim their land inheritance is pretty severe. Ten of those twelve scouts were about to find out just how seriously God takes his covenants, his commands, and the rights and duty of his people to assume their place in the land of promise. The church today is also about to find out that the Lord doesn't change. He is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He doesn't make idle threats. When he says something's forever, he means forever. And that he's not gone back on his promise to the set-apart nation he created through Abraham. Let's move on to chapter 14. We'll get in a little bit of that tonight. Just a few few verses. Chapter 14, we're going to read uh, 1 through 12. Chapter 14 of Numbers. At this all the people of Israel cried out in dismay and they wept all night long. Moreover, all the people of Israel began grumbling against Moses and Aaron. The whole community told them, we wish we died in the land of Egypt. Or that we just died out here in the desert. Why is Ad and I bringing us to this land where we'll die by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will be taken as booty. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to each other, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the entire assembled community of the people of Israel. And Yahushua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Yefune from the detachment that had reconnoitered the land, they tore their clothes and they said to the whole community of Israel, the land we passed through in order to spy it out is an outstandingly good land. 
If Adonai is pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land. He'll give it to us. A land flowing with milk and honey. Just don't rebel against Adonai. Don't be afraid of the people living in the land. We'll eat them up. Their defense has been taken away from them. And Adonai is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But just as the whole community were saying that they should be stoned to death, the glory of Adonai appeared in the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And Adonai said to Moses, How much longer is this people going to treat me with contempt? How much longer will they not trust me? Especially considering all the signs I performed among them. I'm going to strike them with sickness. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to make from you a nation greater and stronger than they are. Verse 1 sums it all up pretty well. The whole community broke out into loud cries and the people wept, says, all night. That is, the elders and the leaders started yelling and screaming and bickering, fighting among each other. And the people seeing what was happening, they broke down into just one giant panic attack. The community of Israel was united, all right. They were united against Moses and Aaron and therefore against God. Oh boy. The community of Israel was on the wrong side. Note to the wise. You can't be against God's mediator on the one hand and on the other hand say you're for God. Then the blasphemy that was in their hearts just came pouring out of their mouths. Oh, if only we'd stayed in Egypt. Translation, we prefer slavery to our formal evil taskmasters than redemption from the Lord. Because the slavery was more comfortable and familiar. And you know what? It did seem to have its perks. What God? Why God? They ask. Why did you bring us here just to be set up for slaughter by the Canaanites? Do you hate us? Now as much as we might all have a tendency to listen to this, to read this, to shake our head side to side in disgust at these Israelites, have we not all done the same thing at some time in our walk with the Lord? Have we not all had an incredibly challenged moment, an incredibly challenging moment, looked up and said, why God, why are you doing this to me? And the elder solution to the problem is just what we might expect. Let's appoint a different leader and have him take us back to Egypt. Let's go back to the slavery and captivity. At least we ate better. At least we had houses to live in. We weren't required to fight and put our lives at risk. I mean, aren't humans funny creatures? How quickly we forget the pain and anguish of our past lives, our lives before God, and we'll go back for even more after we've escaped it for a time. That this truth is so prevalent among men that there are proverbs written to warn and remind us about these self-destructed human tendencies we all harbor. You know, many years ago when I married Becky, she owned a real nice house in California. And when a friend of hers heard that she'd be moving out of that house, he asked 
her if she would consider renting it to him so he could use it as a home for abused girls. And it was that way for well over 15 years. Scores of abused girls and many runaways picked up by the local police, many taken from their abusive parents by social services, lived there over that time. And in some of our conversations with our friend and the overseer of that program over the years, he told us of his greatest disappointment and frustration. That several of these girls, many of whom had permanent injuries, horrible scarring from the abuse, would run away from this safe house. Run away from an opportunity for a better life and go back to that abusive environment. He said it was always to go back to what they knew, what they were familiar with, what they were used to. It was to shun what was new and better for what was familiar and comfortable. This is what we do as believers when we accept our salvation and then go right on living as though it never happened. God brought us up to the promised land and we got cold feet and ran right back to the world. And usually we think we're taking God with us when we choose to go back to the world. But is that really the case? We'll see the answer to that question the next time we meet.